Hello, and welcome to the Revenue Marketing Report powered by Caliber Mind. Our goal on the RMR is to help marketers move from subject matter experts to strategic business partners. I'm your host, Kamala Thompson, and today I'm thrilled to introduce Jason Voyevich. Jason, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, Kamala. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I am. Oh, it's, this is going to be a lot of fun. We're going to talk about competitive intelligence, and I don't want to give away the whole show right up front, but it's a topic near and dear to my heart for sure. Most people know me from a few different roles. I'm the author of Marketer-in-Chief, How Each President Sold the American Idea. That's my latest book. I love history, and I love to relate the lessons of history to issues that marketers and salespeople and business leaders have. And that's that was a wonderful passion project for me. But my day job, uh, because I'm not on, you know, I, I'm not on the New York Times bestseller list uh, right now, my day job is as a fractional CMO. Mm-hmm. So my job is to work with clients on a part-time basis to help them achieve their strategic marketing goals, to help give guidance to marketing operations teams and to kind of keep that marketing and sales business development revenue generating engine going on a day-to-day basis. So I this is one of those topics that just doesn't get enough attention. And I'm so happy that you invited me to talk about it. Well, first of all, huge fan of fractional CMOs. I think it's such a great solution, particularly for smaller stage companies that aren't really ready for that permanent, like full-time executive yet, but need some guidance. So happy to hear that that is something that is continuing to grow. And also competitive intelligence. I mentioned before we started recording that I spent today in the weeds, crawling around, trying to figure out competitor stuff. So it's a topic that is very much on my mind right now. So, <laughs> so thinking to all the steps I took today, how do you typically recommend going about competitive research? I know the way I did it probably isn't correct. <laughs> and it's something I think a lot of marketers find kind of tedious. It certainly can be. And uh, what I would say first is that you are ahead of at least half of marketing teams that you are doing it at all. And that's the thing that might seem just bizarre to, you know, to most, you know, to many listeners is that frankly, many marketing teams and marketing operations teams just simply aren't focused on the competitive landscape. Or if they are, they're focused on one particular competitor that is probably on the mind of the CEO or the CMO or the top salesperson in the organization. And That's the thing. That's where organizations get themselves into trouble, where they just get caught out of left field by a new disruptive competitor that they weren't expecting. And that's why putting a process in place to make sure that you're doing competitive intelligence as part of the marketing and business development operational system is really critical. If it's an ad hoc sort of thing, that's not that it doesn't deliver some value, but only by doing it on an ongoing basis and making it part of your everyday can it really deliver the kind of benefits to keep you ahead because that's the whole point of competitive intelligence right you want to discover those things that will help keep you one step ahead of wherever the competitive frame is at that point because it's always changing it's always evolving and unless you're ahead of it the chances are you're probably behind the curve 
Yeah, and it, it was interesting going through that process today, hearing how different companies speak about the same type right. of technology. It's vastly different. Some of it was very confusing. Some of it was really straightforward and great. So other than figuring out how to refine your own message, like I think of competitive intelligence helping the salespeople and marketing to a degree on their website and differentiating their products in a really upfront way. But what are the other ways people should be using competitive intelligence? I think for, you know, when you think about competitive intelligence from a strategic perspective, what you're really looking for is how do I know as an organization, you know, how do I position myself kind of that differentiation that's key one of the other key objectives of competitive intelligence is early warning. And what I mean by that, most of the time when people do competitive intelligence, let's say you're Zoom. We're recording this on Zoom right now. So it's kind of a, an example that a lot of people understand, especially you know in the past couple of years with the pandemic, there's so much more recording and video technologies. So people understand it. We don't have to explain Zoom to anybody. Most people, when they think of, well, who are Zoom's competitors? If I were working for Zoom and I was thinking about competitive intelligence, what are the competitors that I would be would be on my short list? Well, I'd think, well, go to meeting, go to webinar. They they kind of serve the same market. If I was looking for kind of an easier, uh, you know, kind of a quick ready option, maybe Google Meet. That's uh, in court, you know, it just integrated into the uh, you know the Google Suite. Mm -hmm. Maybe if I was thinking about like more of a disruptive competitor, maybe I'm thinking Slack and Salesforce. You know, so I'm I'm thinking of a few that come to mind really quickly. But when you reframe what is what is the purpose that Zoom is serving from a customer's perspective, what is the job they're trying to do? And this is that kind of classic Clayton Christensen, God rest in, you know, you know, God rest in peace, you know. What are those competitors? What is the job that the customer needs to get done? And how else might they do that? So if I'm looking for quick point-to-point -point kind of communication, a competitor could be simply instant messaging or you know, kind of uh, just getting your Android or your Apple phone and doing a FaceTime conversation. Or it could even be Facebook with horizontal... Uh, I had to look up the name of this thing. It was Facebook's VR. And it's Horizon Work. What did they say? I wrote it down. It's Horizon Workrooms. They got to work on a little branding on that. Yeah. <laughs> but the point is, how do you... What, what Zoom is really trying to do is put people kind of face-to-face -face in a room. Well, how else could you do that? And now that in many areas of the country, let's cross our fingers, the pandemic is starting to ebb. Well, Zoom's competitor now is going back to the office. So when you think about reframing the competitive set, you need to think about the competitive set more broadly and build in that kind of technology and build in those options into your marketing automation and your sales automation systems that help you keep track of on a day-to-day -day basis, who are you up against? What are you seeing? Because if you start to see, yeah, I'm not signing up for this increased package on Zoom because more of our people are coming back to the office. That's something that you as Zoom need to pay attention to. And you want as early a warning of that sort of thing happening as you possibly can. 
So for the companies that wait to hear from their sales team as to who they're coming up against, for I, <laughs> having been a Salesforce admin, getting that competitor field in there and having product teams use that, I always thought was a little bit interesting. I mean, it's a good mechanism to see how frequently they're coming up. But what is the problem with waiting until that point to start anything? Yeah, I think the sales team is one source of competitive intelligence. One, you know, when when you talk with competitive intelligence practitioners in organizations, they talk about information sources. They'll talk about primary and secondary information sources. The primary sources, such as salespeople, you know, you can you can kind of wait for them to kind of type in the field easier if you've got a little checkbox in there. That makes it a lot easier just to check that box. If you know who they are. Yes. If you know who they are. And that's exactly the point, Kamala, is that if it's a new competitor or if I don't, where do I put in my CRM, my Salesforce admin? Where do I put in people are coming back into the office so they're not using my product at all anymore? Like where, where's the checkbox for that? You, yeah. you, you don't know what you don't know. So what CI professionals talk about is you need to go beyond kind of that primary source where you're looking at the data that they're collecting and you need to proactively go after that information yourself, whether that's interviewing salespeople, whether that's doing ride-alongs, uh, whether they're on, you're on the Zoom call or whether you're interviewing the salespeople or frankly, interviewing the prospect, going beyond the customer, doing things like win-loss interviews. Uh, win-loss interview is a technique where a CI professional and, and people in marketing and sales can learn those techniques as well. But what you're doing is you're going to that end customer and you're doing a structured interview to help understand and unpack the reasons why either you won that opportunity or you lost it. And relying just on the salesperson's assessment of that is a useful data point, but you need to go beyond that. There's lots of data out there. And I think a lot of marketing operations teams struggle a bit there. They want to look for that quantitative data. You know, they want to be able to do attribution. They want, and those are all excellent objectives. You must be able to do that. But in order to go behind the numbers, a lot of times it's kind of garbage in, garbage out. Oh, yeah. You know, so you need to be able to mix that quantitative data with in-depth qualitative data, human intelligence, interviewing, deep dives. And that can be for busy data-centric people kind of learn, but the key is learning how to do a good interview is a, it's a teachable skill. You can learn how to do it. And the kind of insight you gather from, from customers who are frankly, almost always more than willing to talk with you about why they made the decisions they did, the kind of insight you can bring back to not only the sales process, your marketing automation, but also front end messaging, you know, and positioning. It's just, it's so critical. So there's a lot of data out there that people are emotional buyers, <laughs> but a lot of the listeners here work in B2B. They're working in very large sales. Are, have you found that the reason why behind going with another competitor tends to gain clarity with the size of the sale or the investment the person's making? Like, how do you avoid the wishy-washy? I think of socks, right? If I'm on Amazon... Right. 
is something slightly cheaper. I mean, that's a definitive reason. But if I feel like wearing purple that day because I woke up and I don't know, had a dream about grapes, who knows? Do you find there's any differentiation with the size of the sale? Yeah, that's a very typically when you think about the larger the dollar value of the sale, it tends to be the more people are involved uh, in the decision. So one of the other techniques that's important to learn and to start to get yourself familiar with is stakeholder mapping and influence mapping inside organizations. What that's going to allow you to do is understand there are you know, kind of rational triggers, there are emotional triggers in the decision-making process, but you need to understand who are the decision-makers, who are the influencers, and what are their roles? And at what time during the sales cycle are they going to be involved? By knowing that, by really understanding, people think about competitive intelligence as, okay, you're up against this competitor and it's this kind of binary choice. In reality, though, especially as the in B2B, where the decision processes can be very complex, competitors can come in and out of the process throughout the sales cycle, especially if we think about large SaaS implementations, you know, where there are, you know, there's software, there might be consulting services, there could be implementation, ongoing support. Think about the packages that you might put together in a really complex B2B sales process. And think about all the competitors that might come in and out during that process. You might be competing with a, your position might be that you have a full service SaaS implementation. You'll do software, you'll do implementation, you'll do onboarding, you'll do training, you'll do ongoing support, complete soup to nuts. Other competitors could come in and say, hey, you put in this software and only pay for the software and we will do the training part for you at half the cost. We won't do any of the other stuff, but we're going to just focus on the training. Another competitor might come in and say, we'll do everything but the ongoing support. The ongoing support is going to be with this partner firm over here. There could be two, three, or four different respondents to that RFP, if it's that formal of a process, where you need to think about not only who is in that organization, but what are their motivations with each of those different competitive options that could be really complicated. And frankly, understanding, hey, if the CIO has been good friends with one of the competitors who had this particular option, it could be really important to know that, hey, the CIO is probably not on our side during this. They're probably going to want to lean towards this where they worked at that company before. Well, a basic LinkedIn search would probably tell you who the people worked for and what their history was. And you might be able to begin to glean what option they might be leaning towards. So when you think about kind of that, it's really just a mindset of how do I understand what I'm up against and how do I position myself against that? So it's not just competitive intelligence in terms of, hey, I'm going to go to SEM rush and I'm going to find out what keywords I'm competing against. That's awesome. You know, that's a part of it. But there's so much more to it than that, especially in complex B2B. You're really doing yourself a disservice not to begin to bring in some of those tools and techniques. And I really like how you pointed out that it's not just your direct competitors, but I'm thinking of with marketing attribution in particular, a lot of times the marketing ops person is fighting for that piece of the budget and they're up against maybe 
a direct mail service that another marketer wants really bad and they have to argue the case for it. Yeah, we, it, you know, we find attributions a sticky wicket, and especially when you think about, you know, in the, in the marketing and sales, when you think about, you know, just think about the job that needs to be done inside the organization, it's, you know, revenue generation, whether that's from new customers or existing customers. And who are all the competitors for those dollars, resources, talent, attention? Marketing operations is just one competitor amongst a lot of different other places that might be doing that. And my advice to marketing operations folks is by adding in some of these other strategic techniques, building in stakeholder mapping and influence mapping into your attribution systems and starting to collect some of that information positions you for kind of increased influence in the organization, increases win rates in the organization. Resources tend to follow wins, especially on the front end of the funnel. So how do you as a marketing professional just continue to increase your value and show that you are a business partner with your revenue generation, your sales teams, your program management teams, you know, that influence mapping and being able to get some of that into the data set and into the data structure so that you can then, you know, how can marketing automation support different parts along the value chain, knowing who you're competing against and how do you give each member of the team the things that they can take in and, you know, uh, how can they compete against at this early stage? We know we're up against these two competitors. How do I, what are the key features they have, the key features we have? And that might change over time, but that's kind of how you continue to build influence. That's really the name of the game in marketing ops, isn't it? Just continue to build uh, that kind of influence within the organization. So let's talk through a little more of the strategy and tactics side. What you mentioned, uh, influencer mapping, journey mapping, what are the things marketers should be doing to best prepare themselves? I think a few things. I think the number one is really that mindset that the customer, the end customer has so much more choice than we give them credit for. And whoever is in your competitive set now, there is probably 2x or 3x the number of real competitors you have. And you mentioned it, you mentioned it exactly right, Kamala that there are indirect competitors in addition to the that there may be an option to do nothing or to delay the uh, the implementation to delay that that happens all the time we all know oh, yeah. that yeah and cost of doing nothing versus doing something and the resource i think anybody who's been in marketing ops has weighed that very heavily i have all these things on my plate it's going to take this much time is it going to save me at least that much time to make the move oh yeah Exactly. So I think the the first task is really about identification and categorization of competitors, just understanding who the competitive frame is. And my favorite technique comes from, uh, it's called Angles of Attack. It's uh, from Eric Johnson and the folks at Aurora WDC. What they've categorized is four different types of competitors that will help marketing folks kind of bucket competitors into groups that make sense that are just actionable the first group 
are those that are that kind of direct feature to feature competitors. They're the ones that are the easiest to understand because they're right in front of you. It's Zoom competing with GoToMeeting. They're just, they're apples to apples and they're competing on little feature sets and price all the way along. The second group are the kind of the low cost competitors. So how do you do this free, low cost, no cost? What's the, what's the hillbilly way to get it done? You always have to be looking at that. Okay. So those are the ones that are taking one little niche feature and that's all they're doing. Remember an example of the complex B2B sale where there was a specialist firm who was just going to do training. That's all they were going to do. That's an example of that kind of low cost niche competitor. They're not going to do the whole thing. They're just going to do exactly this one little task. They can be very difficult to compete against because the price point tends to be a lot lower or it might even be free. So when you compete against them, you need to show how free is actually very expensive. Yes. So that's the second type of competitor. Third type of competitor are those that are disrupting the game in some way. Those are the competitors such as Slack, where they are integrating video calling into the Slack experience. Why would I use Zoom if video calling is built into Slack and I'm in Slack all day, every day? Why would I do that? That's difficult to compete against. And you really have to, you have to figure out, is that organization a Slack-centric organization? If they are, you need to be thinking about APIs and integrations. And again, most B2B SaaS people kind of understand the language I'm talking about here, but you can use the same structure for any B2C or B2B organization. Have you been burned by attribution? Are you tired of fighting with salespeople over target accounts and lead scores? We've all been there, and that's because traditional marketing analytics tools bolt onto your CRM and calculate attribution and engagement scores on the data as it is. And let's face it, most of the time, your CRM data is far from perfect. Caliber Mind is unique because it pulls data from all your sources, not just your CRM, into a data platform. CaliberMind unifies your information, which means you can attribute dollars to website activity, standard Salesforce campaign activity, and more, without wasting time in spreadsheets. Ditch the spreadsheets and check out a new way to analyze revenue data with CaliberMind at CaliberMind.com. Final one, and this is where people get surprised, are the disruptive competitors. Those that they're not out there, they're not making any money yet, they're it's people going back to the office or Facebook doing that Star Wars hologram people kind of thing. Remember, it, most of the time, it's kind of funny. They're like, oh, it looks like Mark Zuckerberg and he looks like kind of a silly Darth Vader kind of there. It's just kind of ridiculous. And people are laughing and it's a big joke. It's a big joke until corporations start to move that way and you start to lose to them and you don't even know you're losing because it's nowhere in your checkbox to say that that's the competitor you were up against or that's the competitor you lost to. Yeah. So that kind of identification and categorization, critical. Just get yourself so It's not just 50 competitors. You only have four competitors. There are only four types of competitors out there. If you can bucket them, it makes them easier to manage. That kind of leads right into the second thing, which is all about processes and automation. How do you build that into the marketing operations system so that you are looking at, okay, you've gotten a new win or you've gotten a new loss. Okay, there's a follow-up interview. Sometimes there's some, you know, there's some questionnaire that gets sent out. 
that's nice. You're going to learn a lot more with a 15 minute interview than you will on rank one to 10. Would you re- would you recommend us to a friend or colleague? Like, there's nothing wrong with the net promoter score question, but everyone knows what it is now. Yeah. And people are gaming it. So it, yeah. it kind of garbage in, garbage out. Yep. So processes and then kind of those skill sets and that kind of leads to that. Once you've automated those kind of processes in there, you need to have those skill sets. You need, you really do need to work on those skills. How do you do interviewing? How do you do stakeholder mapping? How do you do influence mapping inside the organization? How do you build those relationships with your other key stakeholders in the organization? All those soft skill type things critical to really having the impact you want. If you can do those three things, you can identify and categorize. You can get the processes in place to make sure that you are doing this on an ongoing basis. You've got those skills that you're developing, those kind of soft skills, interviewing, influence mapping, those kind of things. You'll definitely make that next step as a marketing operations person. That's the point where, boy, that's that's director level stuff. That's kind of getting onto VP level stuff. That's where you become indispensable in the organization. And you know you're winning when no one wants to go into a sales meeting without talking to you first. Yeah. And I really encourage marketing operations professionals to not just push for the interview call for a competitive situation, but also when they're evaluating tools that people inside their company will use when they're implementing a process that somebody will actually have to interface with being able. And this is funny saying this as a writer, but there's only so much you can do over writing. So much of communication is nonverbal. And it's really important to be able to pick up on those really subtle cues and be able to dig in further on something. I'm not saying lead them to where you want them to go with leading questions. I'm saying pick up when they start to kind of squirm a little bit and say, okay, I feel like we haven't covered everything here. Is there anything else you'd like to tell me? Exactly. I found one of the, one of the best questions I like to ask when I'm doing interviewing is listen, when we started this interview 15 minutes ago, you probably had a set of expectations in your mind of the type of questions I was going to ask and the type of things you were going to say in response. And that was 15 minutes ago. And I asked some stuff and you said some stuff. Did what we talk about match what you thought we were going to talk about? And oh, that's such a great question. I found so often, I, I would say about 80% of the time, they're like, no, this is, we covered it. And you know, I, I always give people the opportunity to say anything else they want to say. And most of the time they don't. But I'll tell you, one out of four, one out of five times, someone says, well, you know, I thought you were going to talk about this. And then we talk for another hour about that. Yeah. Because yeah, that was the important thing to them that they rehearsed in their mind ahead of time. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And it's just being able to give people the permission to tell you that, you're off base and that you're not asking the right question. That's key because if people get into that question, that Q and a mode where you ask me a question, I answer it. You ask, and we go through that kind of back and forth. What ends up happening at the end is we may have missed the point. Yeah. And it, especially with someone like Camo, so much of the B2B sales cycle, both inside the organization, just for 
all of the people that need to work together inside of the organization and all the people at the customer that need to kind of work together to make a decision and all of the competitors who are all doing the same thing. Just think about how complicated that is. Uh, what data are you going to collect that will adequately represent all like where is the where's the silver bullet in there? Where is the tip of the spear? The other mixed metaphor that will get us that will cut through all of the junk and get us to the one salient piece of information that will make the difference. I found just in my experience, unless you have big, fat, reliable, mega data sets, like you have Google's data set, unless you've got something like that, you're relying on human intelligence and careful interviewing and listening, active listening skills. Those are hard, but they are teachable, learnable skills. And marketing operations folks, I mean, that's the, that's the next step for almost every marketing ops person I've met is their next skill. They're awesome at ops, processes, data management, very, very good at that stuff. What they need to get to the next step on is qualitative, soft skills, interviewing, relationship building. They get good at those, and that's the next step. Yeah, I think that's pretty spot on. So tactical solutions, we talked through some of them, customer journey maps, implementing competitive monitoring systems. We talked a little bit about what you can do in your CRM, what you should be doing at the end of a loss is actually interviewing the people. And at the end of a win. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's win or lose should be no difference to you. It was an outcome. It was an event. Whether you won or lost, from a mar most marketing ops people, you're kind of done. There's not much more to do at that point. Uh, now, obviously, if you're doing right funnel work, like customer management and kind of yeah. drip stuff, uh, got it, got it, got it. I totally understand. I don't want you to get phone calls or tweets or LinkedIn <laughs> comments podcast. about this. Don't, don't <laughs> yell at Kamala here. I get it. I get it. I hear you. But most of the time, you're you're kind of done. It's whatever that outcome was, most of the time... People, when they win, thought that it was because they were the best solution. And when they lost, that they lost because it was price or because, hey, the CIO knew that guy and we were just a stocking horse and they did it from the beginning. Those might be true. You might actually be the best solution when you win. It might actually be price when you lose. I'll tell you, though, from doing enough of these, that that's pretty rarely the case. There's always more to it than that. And you need to dig in, you need to dig below the surface to figure out what it really is so that you understand what about all of those things? How should you be positioning at each stage? I can't tell you how many times I found in a, in a win call or a loss call, like, yeah, you were automating these emails and this communication to me. And oh my God, like, this was bizarre stuff. Like, what are you doing in there? And you realized it was because there was a trigger somewhere that triggered this entire workflow that was completely irrelevant. And yeah, maybe you won or maybe you lost, but it really, like, it got under someone's skin. Well, you can fix that stuff. And you don't know unless you ask, because people aren't going to just tell you. Like, no, one, no one's going to call you up and say, Camel, I'm going to evaluate your past five marketing emails to me. No one's going to do that. Who, who does that? I think, you know, when you think about, okay, tactical things you can do, we talked about a few things. 
I'd also add in there the competitive battle card. And it, it's a very tactical thing, but the marketing operations people being able to provide for the business development team, whoever's going to be in front of the customer, who do we think we're up against? What are their features? What are our features? And what has the customer identified as their key needs to be able to know, hey, if the customer says X and they're, we know we're competing with company Y, what is our response to that? Yeah. And being able so the you know, the salesperson is right in front of the customer and can hit that topic really yeah. quickly and doesn't miss a beat. That's the way that you get to be that person that no one wants to go into a meeting until they've talked to you. That and that's really what you want. You want that kind of uh, influence in the organization. And that comes from helping people succeed. And don't rely too heavily on your sales team to provide that for themselves internally, because there's often a lot of turnover and you want to make sure that that knowledge transfers down. Exactly. And that's one of those things where when you think about battle cards and you think about monitoring and you think about journey mapping and influence mapping, all of those things can be built into automation systems and attribution systems. You can find ways to get that in there so that you're capturing those records along with the customer record. It's really key, exactly what you just said, Kamala, about make sure that that you're collecting that data so that it can help build the bigger the data set you have, the more you can do with it. If you start to get hundreds and hundreds of records on what do we feel like, what are the key things that are working and what are the key things that aren't, you can actually present statistical analysis on here are the things we've learned from these interviews And yeah, we've had to actually talk to hundreds of people to get that, but it can move from qualitative to quantitative, which is awesome, which is very difficult to argue against inside the organization. When you have both qualitative and backed up quantitative data, boy, it's hard not to be the key person uh, in that business development cycle when you've got both of those. Absolutely. So... You did mention a historical lesson that I think is really great because it brings up some of the ethical concerns we may be facing as part of this process. And I was wondering if you could run that. Uh, No, I'd love to. I I love history. And uh, lots of folks aren't as kind of geeky in love with history as I am. And but I I promise you this will be relevant. The story, uh, one of the stories I tell in the book is the story of Dwight Eisenhower and the U-2 incident. Now, Folks of a certain age will remember exactly what I'm talking about and know precisely what this is. But for those of us who needed to learn it later, essentially the U-2 isn't fronted by Bono. Okay, The U-2 is a spy plane. And in the 1960s, it was a spy plane that could fly high enough to evade missiles and fighters. So it flew at something like 70 or 80,000 feet. And at the time, uh, the Russian MiG fighters and missiles couldn't get that high. So the bottom line was you could fly this plane over the Soviet Union and you could take pictures and you could see what was going on, but they couldn't shoot you down. The problem is that you might be able to avoid the missiles and you could avoid the fighter jets, but you couldn't avoid radar. They could see you. So they knew you were flying right over and they knew you what you were flying what you were looking at. The whole point is that acquiring intelligence isn't free. There are are concerns. 
well, what did the Soviet Union do when they learned that the U-2 was flying over? Well, what do you think they did? They started trying to figure out ways that they could take one of those planes down. And eventually they got lucky and they did. And that was the Francis Gary Powers U-2 incident and basically Dwight Eisenhower being caught in a lie and saying that, oh, it was just, you know, at first it didn't exist. And then it was a NASA weather plane. And then all of these kind of lies that compounded, it kind of highlights the ethical issues with all forms of intelligence gathering, that the process isn't free. It always costs in order to get that. And what we see sometimes is marketing teams taking competitive intelligence from kind of gathering information that's public, looking on LinkedIn, interviewing customers, things like that, and kind of crossing the line into dumpster diving, into uh, you know actually going through competitors' garbage. That's happened. Okay, other things that might kind of cross the line. Let's say you are you're competing with company X. Someone from company X applies for a job at your company. Do you ask them questions about their products that would be inside information? And or what if they tell you those sort of things? Are those things crossing the line? Yeah, most of the time they are. Okay. Other things. What if your competitor has a demo and you happen to know the password to that demo? It's mm-hmm. Demo and password are is is the account and username and password they put on there. You know that, and you go in and you pose as you use a Gmail account or a Yahoo account, and you go in under a different name and you go through their sales process. Is that unethical or not? Yeah, every organization needs to determine where their ethical line is. Yeah, but. It is very important to think about because once at Camilla, once you get a taste for what better intelligence can mean for your marketing operations system, it's very difficult to say, well, I want more of that. Mm -hmm. I want more information. If I could only know this thing, I would be able to do that. Or if I, if I knew what their product roadmap was going to be, you know, I'd have that, that extra edge. I could arm my salespeople with that information. I'd be even more respected in my organization until you get a call from the lawyer. So you want to define your boundaries early and stick to them. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I think one of the things that whenever you're going to start doing these techniques, a lot of the things are just, they're kind of no brainers. Like, Hey, we're going to identify our competitors. We're going to make sure that we understand inside our customer who the people are that we need to convince. And we've got LinkedIn. We can, we can find information about them so that we kind of know who we're talking to. But once you start to do some of those easy things, it's important to start to figure out where your boundaries are. Where is the ethical line you, as an organization, don't want to cross? What are your values as a company? Many times, just a marketing ops person, if there's a corporate attorney, sit down and talk with them. Mm-hmm. about where those lines are. If, sometimes that's managed through human resources as well, but always making sure to talk with the CMO about that. So uh, knowing you're not an attorney and you're not really giving advice and that no one should... I should be clear this, about that. Yeah, this, nobody is taking this advice. Where is a pretty safe line? Is it public-facing advertising? Is that pretty safe? 
Yeah. Again, uh, not an attorney. Don't want to be an attorney. No. It's odd. Usually, it, I take this the same way I treat things like copyrights, trademarks, things like that. That information that is public in the public domain, it's published on a public website. You needed no username and password. It's on a public website. It is posted to LinkedIn, to a social media platform. Great. Those sort of public facing kind of communications are great. Where you get into sticky situations is where there's a password involved. Oh, yeah. Whether if you are not being completely transparent about who you are, yeah, you can get in. That's that's a place where it could get sticky or uh, you're at a trade show. Remember, we used to go to these things. And yeah. they were there just for the for the younger people in the audience. A trade show was a place <laughs> where we would all go into a big building and we would be really close to each other and spreading illnesses and breathe the same air. We would be breathing the same air mm-hmm. and we'd be there for days at a time. And we would be you could overhear conversations and you could listen. Well, those sorts of things, assuming we go back to things like that in in earnest and if hey, you're going up to a, you over here, you're, you have a person whose job it is to kind of stand near a competitor's booth and listen to the conversations their salespeople have with their clients mm-hmm. or potential clients. Again, it's in a public forum. It's it, But it's one of those places that can be, and it could be ethically tricky. And I will tell you that Competitive intelligence practitioners and their trade organizations and their folks, they talk about these issues all the time. These are this isn't like settled dogma, even inside the CI specialty field. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those folks struggle with this all the time. They wrestle with these kind of issues. And not only did they do that, their organizations do as well. At some organizations, their legal departments have said, here is what's acceptable and here is what's not. Yeah. And if you work for one, there, there may be a policy on that. So look it up and see if there is one. But even if there's not, usually there's a difference between something that someone puts out publicly and something that you had to kind of, you had to either, you know, not be completely transparent with who you were. That's usually where you get into trouble. And uh, it should go without saying that hacking into even white hat hack white hat hacking into another system is a no go yeah trying to put a put a job description out there saying that you're looking for a new uh, a new product manager and you recruit and you interview people from your competitors to get information those sort of things should be obvious to people, but it's the same reason that car windows in the back only roll down halfway Yeah, because someone, some little kid tried to climb out of the thing. So that's why they do that. So the reason we talk about it at all is it's happened and you just need to watch out for it. This is why we can't have nice things. It's like this one time when I was working at a company nice and somebody had one of those spoof dialer things and, and spoof the white house. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. Just can't have nice things at that point. Nope. It's, it's, it happens most of the time though. I, if you're, if you're asking the questions at all mm-hmm. and you're just, you're thinking about competitors more strategically at all, you're already halfway there. Yeah. And when we start talking about ethics and we start talking about kind of shoulds and shouldn'ts, 
that's at that 95 to 100 kind of level. You're you're way up there in terms of that. It just just be aware of it now that you're not doing weirdo stuff early. There's a lot of room between if you're thinking, "Wow, well, I want to kind of interview these people for my competitor," and you're not doing things like competitor identification, you're not influence mapping, you don't have these you don't have your CRM configured to begin to capture that information. You're not doing monitoring of the external environment to collect that information in. If you're not doing that stuff, there's no point in dumpster diving. Yeah. Uh, don't get dirty. You yeah. got plenty of work to do before you before you risk kind of jumping in the trash. Yeah. Don't make it weird in a bad way. <laughs> Weird's <laughs> fine. Just don't do things that you would be upset about if somebody did to you. I think that's just golden rule. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, what did uh, Nassim Taleb, he wrote Anti-Fragile, The Black Swan. He, he actually, he said it really well. He, he calls it the silver rule. Mm. He said, don't do unto others what you would not want them to have them do to you. Yeah. So it's more, like, it, it's not positive. It's avoiding the negative thing. So if yeah. you don't want someone to be hanging around your trade show booth listening to you, don't do it to someone else. Yeah. Yep. Good advice. But not legal advice. Let's make that clear one more time. Legal advice. Very good. I'm not Jason, a lawyer. Jason, thank you so much. It's this was a pleasure. Where can people find you online and get your book? The best place to find me is marketerinchief.com. That's the place to get the book. You can learn all about it. And if you're interested in history, you will love it. It is unlike any history book you've ever read. It's readable. And not to say that other history books aren't readable. Historians don't get on the podcast and yell at her. It's a readable book and it's written for people who don't like history. It's written for people who would never pick up a history book, but they want to, they want to experience it and see why it's relevant. That's who it's for. So please go there and pick it up. Or if you find me on LinkedIn, there's only one Jason Voyevich on LinkedIn. You will find me pretty easily. Look me up, find me. And if you are looking for resources on how to build competitive intelligence programs and free things that you can do and advice that I can point you to, I will point you to that. Just connect with me on LinkedIn and I'll hook you up. That's very generous. Thank you so much. And for those of you looking for more great content like this, check out calibermind.com. 